Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a podcast about the civic technology movement. We seek to harness the power technology has to improve the delivery of public services to people everywhere. Welcome back for another episode of Civic Tech Chat. This time, we're joined by Don McDougall, current senior advisor for Code for Philly, as well as their former executive director, and she's also a business operations and client engagement manager for PromptWorks. We'll be having a discussion about the idea of civic tech as a movement, as well as learning a bit about how Code for Philly does community organizing. Before we hop into the discussion, please also take the time, if you've enjoyed our programming, to hop on over to your podcast app and give us a five-star review. Doing so helps out the program as we try to reach a greater audience, and it helps encourage us to keep on making this high-quality content. So with all that said, let's hop right in. Don, thank you so much for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat this time. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, so a little bit more about myself and what I do. Um, I ran Code for Philly for a number of years from 2015 to 2018 and now um, play a role in a senior advisor capacity. Um, in addition to that, I also sit on the National Advisory Council for Code for America, representing the Northeast region. And my day job that I uh, you know, actually get paid for, uh, that small detail, um, I work at a small software consultancy that builds custom software applications for um, cities, I'm sorry, not cities, for uh, companies all over the country, but primarily in the city of Philadelphia. Now, one of the common theme questions we have here on Civic Tech Chat revolves around this idea of personal why. Uh, what is that for you? What, what drives you to get out of bed each morning and do what you do? That's such a great question. And I think for me, a large part of it is being able to have influence and actually be able to impact things. And I think that was one of the big components of Civic Tech that was so attractive um, from a very, very early stage was being able to roll up your sleeves and get some things done. So I think for me, really being able to have ideas and see those ideas come to fruition and be able to influence um, either people or organizations or just ideas in a positive way um, is, is incredibly uh, motivating for me. Now, uh, as many folks might know, on LinkedIn, there's usually there's a section on each profile, which kind of like lets you sort of freeform say what you will about yourself as like the first thing someone might see. Uh, you're quoted as saying, I often describe my career as something I fell into. Could you talk a little bit about that and maybe like use that as an excuse to take us on the journey you went through developing your career? Yeah, of course. So I went to school originally for environmental studies and marketing and um, sustainable urbanism was ultimately the major that I created for myself. I was very fortunate that I was able to custom design what I wanted to study. And what I was looking at there was really um, government and governance and things like um, networks and sustainability and, and how do these all things come together to really form places that people can live and thrive. And when I was getting ready to graduate college, I actually ended up um, in my senior year uh, doing some community-based research that led me to Code for Philly. And at Code for Philly, I was just so amazed and awestruck by mission and the people who were so passionate about that mission and using their skill set to really make a difference um, and not a difference in five years or 10 years, but a difference today and tomorrow and, and just continual impact. So 
I started getting more involved in this community group that had been, you know, using technology and data to act as a mode of civic engagement. And I started getting more and more involved, taking on more and more. And ultimately, after I graduated college, decided that I didn't want to go to grad school. And instead, I wanted to try to make Cotra Philly a thing, quote unquote. Um, I really wanted to try to um, turn it into a nonprofit organization and make it a sustainable center for civic tech in Philadelphia. And um, throughout that journey, I, I started to learn a lot about technology and how do we think about technology and how is it not only an industry, but a community and a community of practice and sort of getting a handle on the frame of reference that, uh, that we have when we talk about these solutions and how does that fit into um, the community element. And so as I just learned more and more and got more interested in the industry and the practice and the topics, um, I just continue to pursue that. Um, so ultimately, we didn't make Culture Philly a nonprofit. Um, we did not end up pursuing that further after a certain point, but I did get into government technology and I worked in government technology for a little bit. I was at a small company called New Civic that ultimately was acquired by GovDelivery, who provides um, communication solutions, among other things, for um, governments all across the country. And they actually were acquired by another company, Granicus. Um, and then ultimately, after being there for a while, decided to move into the private sector to continue to build out that skill set in terms of the software development and how do teams get formed and how do you really deliver software. And so that is sort of the arc of how I ended up in a place where there's quite a lot of focus on software development and practice and how do you do it sustainably. So a lot of similar things being directed um, in a different uh, sort of different direction, but ultimately using a lot of those skill sets for both the civic tech world and software technology um, and looking at the overlaps and using those things to inform one another to to be better at both. So a, a term you mentioned at the beginning of that, uh, I believe you were, you were talking about starting your own major around it, which is pretty cool in and of itself, but you mentioned the term sustainable urbanism. Could you talk a little bit about what that means and and also, since you've built a major around it, uh, maybe like what that experience is like doing something like that. Sure. Yeah. So sustainable urbanism was drawing. It's a multidisciplinary um, uh, pursuit. So it ne- isn't necessarily like a thing or a discipline in and of itself. But the the basic premise is that you are looking at cities as structures and really understanding how do you make those structures sustainable, not just from an environmental perspective, but economic, political, social, all kinds of stuff. So um, the experience was really to take, um, you know, looking at history, looking at social studies and social science, looking at marketing, looking at um, politics and how do political structures and political history inform the way that people are governed, civic engagement and participation. How do people participate in the places that they live? Um, but really at the heart of that was all to really think about how can cities um, be places that we become attached to and, and places that we want to invest back in. Um, because to me, cities are very much these um, centers of innovation, and there's a lot of opportunity to leverage that innovation for social good, whether that be government or even nonprofits or other sort of social ventures. Unlike other places, you know, I, I came from the suburbs, you know, there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with living in the suburbs or other parts of the country. Um, but I do think cities uh, are situated in a quite unique fashion and have a quite unique set of resources that um, position it quite well to be able to have a different level of impact and influence. And so the goal was really to say, how can we make this model that seems to be re-emerging, this resurgence of interest in cities, how can we perpetuate that um, and get people more excited about that? 
Um, and the experience of the major itself was really great because I got to do both um, academic study, but because I went to Drexel, which is a very hands-on experiential learning um, in, uh, institution, there was a lot of hands-on research doing um, what are called co-ops. It's essentially like a six-month um, job leave to be able to go and like work in industry and work in um, the field. So it was a highly experiential experience, highly um, interdisciplinary experience, but I think ultimately created a, a, a healthy, holistic picture of what um, that image could be. And ultimately, as I learn more about technology, I continue to ask myself, how does technology play a role when technology is just changing everything that we think and all of our assumptions? So um, that is sort of how those things both, you know, got me interested in, in tech, but also um, I could see the connection kind of bringing it back to technology. Now, before we go into more serious things again, I'd like to have us take a little break from the serious, and we're going to go into a little section that's all about old tweets. So, it turns out you do have some. I'm so them. excited. And yours <laughs> uh, start in 2011. So that's so. Imagine yourself at that time, and your. Oh first, God, no! Oh yes, 2011 dawn is is is, is emerging, and actually, I have so to nice. say, your first tweet is way more cultured and grammatically correct than mine ever was and probably many others. Yours is oh, a tweet no. at Eric Amiram. Thanks for reading and great conversation tonight. Hopefully we'll see you at another performance in New York. So I've got like two questions about that. Well, and well, one question and observation. One is that that sentence has a semicolon in it and it's actually used appropriately on Twitter, which is mind blowing. That's hilarious. And the second is, did you get to see that uh, another performance? Did that did that happen? Because I believe uh, this person's a poet, correct? A pretty notable one. Yes. Oh my gosh, you're so good at research. So first of all, I just have to say I was totally against ever using Twitter. The the fun fact about me in technology is that because I was so into the environment when I was a kid, I like refused. I like rebelled against technology because I thought that it was like hurting the environment. I was like, no, I hate technology. So in 2011, I had got to, gotten to college and was like, oh, okay, I have to do this. This is a thing. Um, and so what that performance was, was exactly what you said, was a poetry reading. Um, and it was just a really interesting experience. And sadly enough, I did not see another performance of hers, um, but I should. And now you're, you're uh, re-inspiring me to go back into some of the poetry readings that I, I had thought that uh, I thought that I was going to get into poetry and writing and ultimately didn't, but um, it is a great, it was a great reading and a great book that she had. I actually still have it. Well, you know, the Civic Tech Chat is all about promoting patronage to the arts there. And, and actually uh, it, discovering that poet through your first tweet, uh, I'm totally going to be consuming a bunch of their writing here myself. I, I, I got, oh, I got awesome. around to looking at like the first couple of surface things while I was researching, but uh, they seem like a pretty enticing poet as well. That's awesome. Deeper. Now, it's funny you mentioned that like you were very against Twitter for the next one because you did not tweet for three years after that. It was like, Correct. Dom tweet number one, and now I'm, I'm off the face of the earth. Exactly. Now, there was, a, there was some tweets that came back, and I guess it was 2014. And one of those is kind of an interesting comment that I'd like to, if you remember the like, context, I'd like to see if there's more about the meaning of the statement, is you quoted uh, someone named uh, Rich Negrin, who if I'm pronouncing that right, who I believe is currently a deputy mayor in Philadelphia. Um, he was the managing director up until I want to say that was 2015. I think he left with the previous administration. So yeah, 2015, maybe 2016. 
Uh, but your the tweet you it was like a quote that you got from him that says nationally recognized, Philly criticized. Yes. Okay. Yes, I I remember that entirely. So. Um, I think that this was at a uh, conference that he was speaking at, and it was for something called Philly Rise, which was a program of his, and this was in North Philadelphia, and it was um, uh, it was engaging neighbors in that area, residents in that area, to talk about all the services that the city has, which is like Philly 311, um, something called Clip, where it's like basically picking up trash and getting rid of graffiti, all this stuff to like have beautification and like really enrich the lives of people there. And he was talking about this, this thing that happens is this phenomenon in Philadelphia where nationally speaking, people are like, wow, Philadelphia is so ahead of the curve. They're leaders in this area. They're amazing. And in Philly, there's this interesting attitude where you like, that's like flashy and like, you don't, you don't want to like, you know, talk about yourself too much and, oh, Philly's not that great. And we don't do that much and we're not that good. And it's, insane because if you were to look at it objectively you're like no we're like number one in like water quality and like the largest like number one in large in large cities or whatever something like that but then everyone taught everyone in the city itself is like oh the water quality here is like no objectively it's good so it was just a really succinct perfect way of capturing this really interesting attitude that philadelphians have that sort of hold them back even though there's so many people doing amazing work here I think what I'm hearing is that entire cities can have imposter syndrome. Ooh, good way of putting that. I can't tell if it's a po- imposter syndrome or if it's just like, like Philly was economically depressed for a really long time. And there was a lot of corruption in the city and the city government specifically. And so I think that I can't tell if like, it's just people who have this old idea of Philadelphia and they, mm. it's just like permanent in their mind. You know how sometimes when you think about somebody, you're like, you know, you've yet, you haven't seen them in 10 years and in your mind they're the same exact person, even though like they obviously changed a ton in that time. Um, I wonder if it's the same thing with Philadelphia where it's like, if you've been around when things weren't that good, it's hard to think about Philly being different. Um, because you know, that's just how you remember it almost. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and since we're on Philadelphia, I did have like written in the margins here in my notes, a question that came to me. It's why it's in the margins. This morning, while I was listening to another podcast, that is very Philadelphia-centric as a question. So if you have an opinion Ooh. on this, we'll, we'll leave this one unedited out. Uh, so on Gimlet, they have a, like the podcast Reply All. And the yes. episode that released today, and for the, for the listeners so that they're not lost on context, today is the 15th, uh, which is a Thursday of November in 2018. Uh, they had an episode that's about gritty at the beginning. And about, it's like one of those, like, yeah, it's like the yes, so yes, good. no segment where they, there's a tweet that their boss Bloomberg comes and asks about. And well, the basis of it is, I guess, uh, that gritty has become like a bit of a symbol. And I guess like the, the question that I'm getting to with this is like, what, what's your hot take on gritty? Oh, I would love to give you my hot take on gritty. So this is gritty is everything about Philadelphia that you love and hate all wrapped into one. It's so perfect. So the thing that I love the most about Gritty, so first of all, Gritty as a mascot is terrifying. Like the stuff of nightmares, just just visibly terrifying. Um, and when this mascot got rolled out, everyone in the city of Philadelphia was like, what is this? I can't believe that the city of Philadelphia did this. This is ridiculous. You're embarrassing us. Like Gritty is insane. Gritty is terrible. And so there's this great, you know, kind of tweet that's like local media, local Philadelphia media, Gritty is terrible. National media, 
Gritty is terrible. Philadelphia, don't you talk about Gritty. He's a national <laughs> treasure. Don't shoot. And it was so Philly. Everything about that moment was just like, that is so Philly to like talk trash. And then the second that someone else talks trash, you're like, don't talk trash about Philadelphia. Um, so there's like this kind of wonderful, like, it's okay if we say it, but not you, um, sort of like familial vibe almost of it. And I just love that. And there's so much of it that just is like, yeah, that just looks like somebody from South Philadelphia in some ways. You're like, there's, there's a lot there. So I think the, the turnaround on that became quite real for people. And I think um, it did make the mascot even more endearing. And I was just like, weird how that works, but sure, I'll take it. So that's my hot take on Philadelphia. Of I agree very much with what other people have said in terms of that reaction and makes me just, you have to love Philadelphia for that attitude switch. So now that we've talked some Twitter and some gritty, uh, I do want to like shift us into uh, one of our main topic areas for this episode. And uh, one of the things I, I wanted to cover with you in part, uh, and again, to give like listeners some context, I had the, the privilege of uh, to maybe not to steal your words, but to like fall into a conversation you were having with some folks about the concept of civic tech as a movement and well, is it a movement and all of that sort of thing. And I guess to start us off with that, like let's go hot take again. What, what's your hot take on that statement? Just like the, the word civic tech as a movement. I think I remember the conversation you're referring to, which was after many days of a very inspiring conference, but also many, many beers. Uh, so I hope I get the like sentiment right, because I feel like whenever I am uh, partaking in that, I'm very like emotional and sentimental and we can do this. Um, so hopefully I can recreate that in, in this context. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think that there is something really incredible about just this time. You know, I think that what's so impressive about civic tech is that it really does empower people to operate and influence in a way that they just haven't been able to before. And also they've been invited to the conversation in a way they haven't been before. I think that oftentimes when we think about civic engagement, it's either hyper-local where you can be a block captain or work on a civic association or you're in elected office and you can vote. And, and those are kind of the two options. And, you know, not only are those options not great because those institutions are outdated in some ways, right? Like some of those principles are good and we want to keep those, but some of the infrastructure just doesn't make sense for our world today. But also the way that people work. I mean, the way that people operate as young professionals, as young people, you know, they're motivated by different things. And I think that they have different aspirations. And if they're able to leverage their network, their skill set, their, um, you know, their sort of resources, those are all things that we want to tap into. And yet, we're just not updating the infrastructure to do that. And I think civic tech is an opportunity to do that, right? We're creating this infrastructure for people to plug in in a way that they haven't been before and really be part of the conversation in a way that they haven't before. Also because they have expertise that people who've been making decisions don't have. So I think that there's definitely a really interesting time that civic tech is coming up. And then I also think a really interesting way, you know, I think it attracts people from a lot of different, backgrounds, right? It's not just about people who are coders. Like there's so many people who come from politics, who come from grassroots organizing, who come from social sciences, from economics, from um, research, and so many walks of life. So it's actually like, 
in some ways kind of a, a big tent. And so I think that, you know, something that has been really resonating with me from conversations with people at different points in time, is just this idea around how do we really point people in the right direction? And, and I, you know, don't want to take credit for being like, you know, the, the main person to think of that, but I think that's right. Like, I agree with that very much that if we can take all the energy that's been sort of um, passively sitting and waiting to become, um, you know, kinetic, I think that, that we can have a really huge impact. And so I think that's where that movement piece comes in is if we can really, um, if we can really create that focus, I think that we'll be able to uh, just really have something really incredible. So I, I would like to take, dig into some of what you're saying there in the context of um, like the idea of perhaps like what is a movement? Uh, I think there's kind of like four things that have to, uh, that end up happening over the life cycle of a movement. Like there's some community that forms up and decides, hey, like there's this common problem or common set of goals that we all have as human beings. Then there's a phase where it's like that said community needs to find and figure out resources, which oftentimes is like, how did the question, and I think you were alluding to this a bit in, in your answer. It's like, how do you find the right people and get them to the right thing, essentially? Then there's the third phase where it's community finds solutions, which again, I think you were describing quite a bit there as well. It's like, what then, we've identified problems, we've found people, what are we gonna do? And then the last stage then, community is then either accepted by an establishment that exists or replaces it or is rejected by it. Where would you say we're at as a, I guess a community in the context of what I was describing yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I mean, I think that, I mean, the, the last part about, I, I, I agree, the establishment piece, right? Like, we sort of, I think movements are, are trying to change um, structures and the establishment and really make inroads there. And so I think that the reason I think that's interesting is that so in so many cases, civic tech sort of operates outside of the establishment in so many ways. It's kind of like, almost in response to, right? It's like, oh, the establishment isn't doing this, so we're going to. So I kind of wonder about that with civic tech where they have, you know, we have a a community of like-minded people, to your point. Um, You know, we're starting to at least talk about solutions and start to think about, you know, what could be solutions to change the establishment. Um, But I do think people are operating with it in some cases and outside of it in other cases, right? So like when we think about brigades within the national network, it's, you know, it's like, okay, well, a brigade is going to go work with a government partner to change the way the governing body operates. And governance, uh, I think the difference here, right, other than government structures, governance is the sort of boring bits, right, where it's like service delivery, um, administration. And so we are seeing some of that from some parts of the establishment. Um, So, yeah, I guess I'm kind of in a long way saying I am seeing some of that already with brigade collaborations. And then also seeing people not necessarily assuming that they have to work in or with or aside from the establishment and really saying, we're just going to kind of create our own thing and service what we think makes sense as opposed to saying we have to rely on government. And I think that's actually a really big, important question in this space right now is what really is the role of government in some of these topics and where do public private partnerships make sense? Where do you kind of leave that to either a nonprofit or a civic association or, you know, or in some cases doesn't make sense to have private entities. Um, so I think that's like a really hairy conversation that maybe, you know, isn't in the scope of this podcast, but I do think that, you know, to me, um, I wish I had a better answer for you, but I feel a little bit like there's different stages of the, of people in the movement at any given point. And depending on where they are at, they might be in one of those phases. 
So, so something I think I, I'm hearing from you in that is that perhaps there's like some difference in where we're at, depending on where you are and maybe depending on like what community organized there. So like where I'm at, for example, I, in Chicago, we have a group Shy Hack Night and their like methodology for approaching this is different maybe than say in Philadelphia where you're at or in San Francisco. Like in fact, uh, I, I had Derek uh, Eater on the program and he, I, so I got like the opportunity to hear it from his mouth uh, in that like a lot of their perspective ends up being kind of like outside in versus maybe right. a brigade in the network, maybe their view is more inside out. Maybe they have a relationship there to use. Um, am I hearing that correctly from you? And if so, do you have any opinions on, on like the, I guess that duopoly of approaches? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that it, I think it's healthy, right? Like I think that that's one of the complicated parts about something that's at an ecosystem level is that there are lots of different operators focusing on different things, operating in different ways. And yet we have a sort of shared goal or shared purpose, which is to really change the way that our civic infrastructure looks. You know, I think that oftentimes we hear talk about government, but for me, it's at the civic infrastructure level and the infrastructure isn't just public funds, right? It's, it's a lot of different people who, who make up that infrastructure. So I think for me, I think that's mostly right. And then I think too, you know, just a, a, another point is I think the other piece of how we operate is certainly uh, within our own community in terms of the civic tech community or gov tech community or, or whatever you want to kind of label the tent. But I think the other side of that is that this group of people wants to work with other communities, right? People who have lived experience, people who, um, you know, are service providers and government folk. Um, so I think that that's when we talk about communities, it can be um, a little bit confusing, but I think also definitely important to think about, you know, when we talk about inside out or outside in, what does that mean? And what does that look like? And, and who are we really talking about when we talk about community and, and what does that collaboration look like? Uh, are there those bigger trends that you think should continue versus ones that perhaps you should stop? Uh, maybe to use the words of like a retro meeting. Yeah. Um, another great question. So I think in terms of starting, I think this is happening in some places, but it's, it's quite challenging to do, but important is um, working more with people who have direct experience or lived experience. I think in terms of software, it's really clear, you know, you, you go to users and you get direct feedback from users. You care about, building something that the, the person who's ultimately going to use it wants or meets a need of theirs in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, we can kind of transpose that same principle into civic technology to say, yeah, you should talk to people who, you know, you're trying to build a solution for. Um, and that mantra from Lauren Ellen McCann of build with, not for, I think is something that we, we understand and, and we, we see it in some ways, but I think living that and practicing that um, are going to be, it's going to be a process. It's going to take us time to really have widespread adoption. So I think continuing to be incredibly thoughtful and intentional about our practices, um, collaboration and different modes of collaboration and understanding that just because we want to make user journey maps doesn't mean that the, com the community knows what that means or what that looks like or finds that valuable. So just understanding process and um, some of the, the work that will need to happen when you want to collaborate with people with lived experience. Um, and I also think uh, one thing that's come up for me quite a lot over the last few days, even, and just in general, these conversations is really understanding the pace of change and really understanding what productivity means and, and what does it look like. And I think that within technology, because the culture is very fast paced, because we're always sprinting, sprinting, sprinting to get to some kind of finish line, um, there is oftentimes um, an understanding of quality, but I think we oftentimes want to be doing and, and having solutions and having 
results and outputs and KPIs. Um, I think when it comes to community-based work, that just doesn't work, right? You're asking people to have behavior changes. You're asking people to think differently. Um, you're asking people who are the professionals to really understand and absorb the lived experience of folks. Um, and even just within our own practice, like how do we work together as a community on things? So I'd really just challenge us to continue to evolve our thinking around productivity because even though something is a conversation and we have a 20-minute conversation, it's like, well, we didn't get any next steps out of that. It's like, yeah, that's okay. Both of our thinking evolved on this. And as we refine that thinking, I think that's going to lead us to better solutions and, and better thinking around these topics generally. And then in terms of stopping, I think that's a really um, a great question and a great way of thinking about that. Um, I think that I'd love to see us stop um, talking about projects so much for brigades. I feel like oftentimes it always centers around projects, projects, projects as like the only and core deliverable, as opposed to saying, well, we want five projects that all of us are going to work on collaboratively and kind of have our own instances and we'll iterate. Um, I think that we oftentimes see projects as a way of concrete expression and creative expression for volunteers. And so we focus very much on how do we do projects better. Um, while I do think that doing projects better is going to be really important, I think just um, understanding that that's not our only value or output, and that's just one metric of success, I think could be really helpful for us as a community to reframe how we think about those topics and, and how do we think about projects and maybe maybe make them less high stakes all the time. So something I sense in there is there might even be like a little bit of an industry analogy that perhaps applies to both that like build with not the adoption of that build with not for comment as well as the like the influx of like using community organizing skills as opposed to just like let's build stuff all the time and that it's like the adoption of agile so like there's companies that they're like yeah we're agile shops but like what that really means is like hey guys we we have a stand-up or hey folks we, we have a stand-up that happens that's a great analogy but is there some of that sort of like behavior that goes on perhaps with those things as well in our space? Do you think? I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a great analogy. I mean, I think that's exactly right, right? Like the things that we use in our day-to-day practice, we want to bring in and incorporate because we see them being incredibly successful at the workplace. And so we say, yep, journey map. Yep. We need to do card sorting. Yes. We need to do agile, all that kind of stuff. And that's totally practical and useful in many, many contexts for sure. Um, what I'd love to see us do more of is, really look at people who've done community organizing really well, volunteer management really well, and borrow more from those practices. And I think we're starting to, and I've been really encouraged just to see more conversation around that. But sometimes when we talk about these problems, it feels as if, you know, at the brigade level, at least when we talk about um, the Code for America brigades, it almost feels like we're talking about these problems as if it's the first time anyone's ever encountered them because we've just discovered them. And the reality is that no, like these are very well-trodden problems. Volunteer management at scale is not totally new, right? We've seen a lot of different groups who have um, seen that and overcome that. And so I think one of the cultural practices of technology is knowledge sharing. And I'd love to see us try to influence some of the other people who've solved these problems and say, look, we want to be knowledge sharers. How can we do that and bake in more community organizing practices, more grassroots organizing, um, and really see if we can look to that for inspiration um, versus, I think right now we're trying to solve community organizing problems with technology approaches rather than kind of using the right tool for the right job. So I think that's a great analogy. And of course, like adjacent to community organizing and perhaps something that just comes up in our work because it's adjacent to it in general is the, like the world of public policy, which of course 
inevitably is going to touch politics. I don't think there's really any way to, to talk about it without it coming up. So I would be curious on what your, your thoughts are on like the appropriateness of how we interact with that. Uh, in part, because I like, I myself am a bit of a political animal. It doesn't end up on coming into civic tech chat much, but any, anybody who did a Google search should be able to kind of sort that out pretty quickly. Uh, so like, what, what are your thoughts on where those things touch? Um, I can't believe that you haven't given your listeners your story, your origin story in politics, because that is a great origin story. But I, I will leave that to you to tell tell people about that at some point. Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think that, that the policy question comes up a lot, right? Because our ability to intersect as people with uh, government structures is through legislation, right? Like, that is sort of the mandate, that's sort of the enforcement and accountability. You know, if we go to city council or if we go to, uh, you know, the mayor's office, you know, there's, there's really, um, I think, some big influencers in terms of like, oh, yeah, well, this is a policy, this is legislation, this is a mandate. Um, I sort of have the same attitude of really, I think there's an over-reliance on that. I think that's a different world that we used to live in where it's like you need rules because if you don't have rules, no one follows it and there's chaos. It's just not like that. And I think that we're seeing more and more of the world shift towards, you no, know, you trust people, you empower people, you get things out of their way, and they're, they're intrinsically going to want to improve things. So I think, you know, there's definitely sort of a necessary evil in terms of understanding legislation and how it impacts that. But I think that, um, I guess my bias and maybe my, my pipe dream is that we don't have to be so reliant on things that are giving us rules. And instead, we can come together more collaboratively to understand principles that govern us. Um, obviously, you know, with some, some parameters there. Um, but I do, I do, I think it's my general feeling towards policy. Um, and then I think also partially just the way that like the average citizen or resident can interact with policy is, um, not great. You know, it's like public testimony at a two o'clock in the afternoon meeting on a Thursday, you know, it's, it's, it's not really set up for a lot of public participation at the moment. That is very true. And in fact, uh, there was an old episode, I, I think I was talking to some folks from, uh, I think it's Open Savannah, that like one of the oh, concepts cool. that came up is that there's like the concept of a public meeting that whatever body doesn't question, like actually wants you to come to. And then there's the concept of a meeting that's just on the calendar as an open meeting because they have to, because it's the law, but yeah. they don't really want they you to check a box. Talk. Yeah. Yep. Is, is that something yep. you've kind of observed and run into? Well. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That's so one thing that we've talked about at Code for Philly. I think one of the things that I wish I did a better job on when I was um, in a leadership role was really to uh, breathe more of the mission into what we do. I think we had a lot of interest from technologists who are like, oh, I want to work with other technologists. But what we really wanted was to encourage people to be really passionate about the civic component of it. And so we were trying to think about how do we bake this into our programming in a more meaningful way. And I think at the time, Erie Meyer and I were chatting a bunch and she was like, you know, there's some people who go and set up at City Hall to show off their work or they engage in other ways. And I really just that concept of like, go to your user, right? And I was like, oh, duh, light bulb. Like, of course, we're, we're being ridiculous. We're just kind of expecting people to come to us on our terms. Um, so we had talked a lot about how we sort of do these field trips to go to city council meetings or to just get out into the community more that we want to serve. Um, and ultimately, it was really challenging because they would be these these meetings would be in the middle of the day. Um, and something that I've heard quite often from people who are doing this type of work is just this constant barrier. And, and like you said, it, it, it's doing it because you feel like you have to. You're checking a box as opposed to genuinely caring about getting that feedback and that testimony. Because if you did, you'd, you'd find a different way of getting it. 
I think that's a pretty good segue uh, for us to talk a bit more about uh, Code for Philly as an organization, especially since it's kind of come up in that interaction. Uh, In that context, is there what one might call like the Code for Philly model for community organizing that in your view? And if so, how would you describe that? Such good questions. I think that we're still figuring out what community organizing looks like because we're still really, I think, learning in any ways who this community is. I mean, I think that we've tried different sort of pilots or experiments or programs that have helped to create a sense of cohesion. Um, And I think that we do really good on the tech side. I think what we don't do so well on is that community piece that I was talking about before of people who are neighbors, people who are residents, people who have lived experience. Um, but I think that that's something that we're definitely trying. So I would say, you know, what the model is today, and maybe it's not what it should be, but I think what the model is today is that we use weekly events to try to engage a lot of our regular ongoing projects and members. Um, and then we use special hackathons to really help us broaden our reach so that we can partner with government and that we can partner with organizations who have a broader reach than we do into communities that we wouldn't be able to touch. So um, oftentimes when we do the hackathons, you know, it's also a great way to jumpstart somebody in Culture Philly is just to say, hey, come to the hackathon. You're going to have a weekend to get started on the project. Um, so we've worked with government partners to say, hey, what are the problem statements you'd like to see us address at this, this hackathon? Um, can we get you involved? Can we have you speak at this hackathon? Um, but then in the last couple of years, what we've also started doing is branching out to partner with other organizations who are not in tech. So last year, we partnered with a reporting collaborative who um, is focused on reentry, and we focused the hackathon all about reentry and reintegration solutions for people who were coming out of the criminal justice system. Um, and that was very interesting and a huge learning experience. I felt like I got a ton out of that. Um, and so there was that one. And then this year we actually did something called Quest Tax. And that was one where we were going to the North Philadelphia community, which is a particularly challenged community in Philadelphia. Um, and we really wanted to focus on how do we make community members at the center of this? How do we make community members, how do we make us a community-centered or community-driven, community-based hackathon? And I think that we're continuing to learn, but there was a lot, a lot of lessons that we got out of engaging those folks. So I think, you know, that's, those are a couple of things that we've tried um, and really just trying to be thoughtful and intentional about how we go out and to, uh, you know, to engage folks. Um, but those are a couple of things that we've tried, but I think that's uh, definitely a model that we're still evolving and, and hoping to share and get feedback from, from others who are doing similar work. Now, one of the things you mentioned as an event in that uh, was the idea of a hack night. And I also saw uh, kind of perusing the meetup and the website that you also have another type of event called an open house. I'd be curious if you could compare and contrast those things and like what their purposes are for us. Yeah, totally. So uh, when I started running Hack Nights in 2015, it became pretty clear that just having one night where everything was happening was hard because people came for different reasons to the event. So some people really wanted to come and just not get some features and hit a milestone and go home for the night. Some people just wanted to socialize. Some people just wanted to see what was Code for Philly all about and learn more about it. And all of those are valid reasons to come. Um, but it was hard for us to manage certain parts of that as organizers. It was kind of exhausting to like run the whole show as an organizer. And it ultimately wasn't providing great value to our community members. So uh, what we did was we broke it up. I think this was, I think this was maybe either early, I think this was early 2016 where we broke it up into a different format. So we said, okay, we're going to do hack nights where you're just there to work on your project. That's what this is all about. You're there to either join a team, 
um, have in-person time to collaborate with somebody who you're working with or whatever it might be. Um, then we also broke it out into open house nights. And the idea of the open house night was to, I think they might be called networking nights, but it was just to be social. It was like, hey, you know, we work really hard. It's great that we work really hard, but maybe we don't have to work all the time. And so just having those social connections, that was really important to me that we have some space to give people a chance to get to know who we were as people, to socialize and create those bonds together even more um, in a more um, intentional way. And then also just to give people a sense of like, um, you know, what do you do? And then the, the kind of third part of that was like, oh, well, we're going to partner with other community member, uh, technology groups so that we can bring bridge out so that's not just code, it can be design and data science and analytics and all kinds of stuff. So that was broadening my technology piece. And then other sort of formats that we've introduced now is also Coach for Philly 101, which is like like now kind of breaking out the, the 101 piece to say, okay, well, we really just want to focus on, you know, here's Coach for Philly, here's our mission, here's how you get started on a project, all that good stuff. Um, so it's just really trying to create different formats and different styles for people um, to, you know, accommodate what their preferences are, really give them space to, to plug in in a way that's sensible for them and logical for them in terms of um, building upon itself for their membership of like, I go to socialization, then I, you know, do this thing, then I join a project. Um, so yeah, that was the intention to really just provide more value to the community members. And I think it's been successful. It's continued on since 2015. So uh, it'll be almost for, I guess, three years um, in 2019. And if someone out there in Civic Tech Chat listener land is in the midst of organizing their own group around these like Civic Tech type initiatives, is, is there any advice you would give them starting out as they're just getting up and running? Oh, so much advice. I think number one is talk to all of the brigade leaders who have done this before. So make sure that you get connected to the Code for America network and, and just, just ask a lot of questions. Um, I've spent a lot of time with potential brigade leaders, just talking them through what to expect. Um, I think the other big thing is don't do it alone. Don't try to start a brigade on your own. Um, and don't try to start a brigade and then build a community. You know, you really want to build a brigade only if you have, um, you know, a lot of people asking for it and demanding it because it's a lot of work to not have any help on it. It's a lot of work to not necessarily see impact. So making sure that there's a community there who wants to support it. Um, and I think if you have those ingredients, the sell to government, the sell to partners is really easy. It's just about making sure that you, um, you know, you really know what you're getting yourself into. Don't do it alone. And uh, yeah, make sure that you're doing it for a group of people versus a single interest. So Don, uh, thank you so much for joining us again here on Civic Tech Chat, uh, sharing your thoughts about uh, your perspectives as a thought leader here in Civic Tech, talking with us about status as a movement and all of the things that re revolve around that. And one of the things we do here on the program is we try to give the guest the opportunity to leave us with the last word. Essentially, those thoughts that we should leave this episode thinking as we go about the rest of our day. So for you, Dawn, like, what, what would those thoughts be? Yeah, and thank you for having me on. I think this has been a great conversation, a lot of fun. Um, you know, I think just, you know, where this got inspired, that, that same conversation about, you know, are we a movement? And I think for me, the answer is we can be. Um, I know we talk about it a lot and I think we want to be, but I think we're still really learning what that is and what that means and what it looks like. And I think my big thing for folks that I really hope that they walk away with is just that, you know, it's important work and that there's a lot of potential to have meaningful impact, um, but it's not going to happen overnight and it won't happen 
in a year or two years. These are really, really big changes that we're talking about. So um, I'd love to just, you know, continue to encourage people to keep with the work to see that small changes amount to big and larger changes later down the line. And really just to um, say to like this community and this group of people doing this work is incredible. I think, you know, the, the, the people who you bond with and the people who you do this work with, um, those are going to be lifelong friendships and relationships. So I think um, if nothing else, you'll get to spend a lot of wonderful time with wonderful people um, and hopefully have some, some good impact that will last much longer at the same time. Awesome. I think you've given us a lot to think about today. And I know myself, I'll, I'll be reflecting on this conversation later. And I imagine a lot of our audience will as well. So again, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Civic Tech Chat. Thanks, Ryan. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at Civic Tech Chat. Visit us on the web at civictech.chat or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.